Hello, hello. Well, today I had the amazing pleasure of interviewing Sally Galloway. So Sally is a seasoned pediatric occupational therapist with 14 years experience. She's known for her passion in early education, advocation, child development, expertise, and a commitment to inclusive practices. As a speaker, not-for-profit founder and OT Australia Divisional Council Delegate, Sally has made a significant impact in the various roles within education, both private and government sectors. Her co-founding of a charity that provides support and programs for children facing adversity, as well as her role as a PNC president and circle of security facilitator, highlight her dedication to creating adaptive and supportive environments for children to learn and thrive. Sally's impact extends globally with her work as a national manager of occupational therapy and her presentation at the ECC ERA conference in Budapest, where she shared insights on supporting early education professionals. Currently, Sally is focused on providing practical and accessible training to early learning centres, empowering them to create inclusive environments for all children. Her unwavering commitment to the well-being of children, combined with her ex extensive experience and expertise, sets her apart as a remarkable advocate for an early education child development. So, our meeting was phenomenal. Let me just say that really quickly, because when Sally and I talked, I actually didn't know the difference between what a pediatric occupational therapist was and what a normal occupation or what an occupational therapist is. So Sally was able to explain that to me and um, changed the way I looked at the word pediatric because I always thought pediatric was just babies and uh, so she was able to uh, correct that thought process for me and we went further into a whole range of different topics um, that were fascinating including where she helped me see uh, that I was being quite black and white in an approach that I take to early childhood education because I was coming from my personal um, blueprint, so to speak, and you'll hear it right at the very end where I'm like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I can see that that's not the only way to deliver early education. So it was a really informative conversation. And when we stopped recording, we talked more and got even further in depth about, oh, all host of other stuff and I was kind of wishing that I'd kept recording because it was really interesting the things that we talked about suffice to say Sally will be coming back and we will make another time to have Sally join us I want to delve into trauma care um, trauma-informed child care because I think there's a lot of us dealing with a lot of that right now and we are just so ill-equipped uh, because it's a fairly new new topic or it's not a topic but a fairly new way of looking at education but it impacts so 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 many so I'm very very keen to have Sally come back but in the meantime, have a listen to today's podcast. I know you're going to find it as informing and eye-opening and mind-bending as what I did. So without further ado, here is the beautiful Sally Galloway. 
Hello, hello and welcome to the Big Hearted Podcast. My name is Victoria Edmund and I am your host. Our aim here at the Big Hearted Podcast is to nurture a community of heart-centred educators to change the perception and delivery of early childhood education and care in Australia and ultimately around the world. We want you to be inspired by our guests and the topics we bring to you to think of new ways of being as an educator. We want you to feel a sense of belonging via this podcast so that you can engage any time of the day or night in any place that suits you. We want you to become an educator that delivers education from the heart, as we believe this is how we create great change within our world. So join us as we discover new ways to inspire each other here on the Big Hearted Podcast. Okie dokie, welcome, welcome. I have the beautiful Sally with me, as you just heard in the intro to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sally. It's really lovely to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. We've just met for the first time. Sally and I work in a or together in a business group, and uh, I put a call out for people to come and join us on the podcast because lots of people that are working in early childhood um, have just recently joined this business group, the Tina Tower Group. And um, Sally was the first, one of the first ones to put a hand up, which always excites me because it's a go-getting attitude that you have most definitely. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about how you found yourself where you are right now and what led you to being here? Yeah, thank you, Vic. So Yeah, I, like you said in the intro, I'm a paediatric occupational therapist. So have been, oh, for, for, yeah, 14 years now. Um, And I guess how I got into the early childhood space was in my first year um, after I graduated. So I always knew I wanted to be an occupational therapist, um, because I had a, a grandma who was a pioneering woman. She was a physiotherapist, always thought, oh, maybe um, I would like to be a physiotherapist until I kind of looked at what occupational therapy was. And that sort of led me more to that space. But my first position was in a early intervention centre for children with autism, but it was based in a long daycare setting. Mm-hmm. And so this model was really really looked like I worked alongside early childhood educators, uh, teachers, speech pathologists uh, and myself, but it worked in a transdisciplinary model, meaning that my my work, like whoever had the greatest connection, I guess, with the child or the children we were working with would be the person who would do that work. And so it was really my first step into this place of yeah early childhood and understanding the impact uh, Mm. early childhood educators and the sector made and um, we were able to create such amazing outcomes and I learned so much from my early childhood colleagues that you know I have now spent the rest of my 14 year um, degree in in this space and feel really really passionate about that the early years and early intervention. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's it's such an incredible field. Like, don't you find that you learn so much about yourself when you work with children? Like totally. 
especially in the early intervention uh, realm as well, because it just teaches you so much more about patience and then the level of knowledge that you have to uncover and unpack around the different sorts of neurodiversity that are around. It's just phenomenal. Um, And I know you've done some work in the trauma um, area as well, which I find is is just as fascinating the the ability for the body and the brain to be able to process trauma and how that works but then for children to be in that vulnerable position where they can't control any of what happens to them and so what we as educators experience is the body's natural way of processing and offloading tension and stress and all that sort of stuff. And then we as educators don't know what's going on. And that trauma-informed care is so, so, so important. So so paediatric occupational therapy, how is yeah. that different to just occupational therapy? So, yeah, the word paediatric, it just means, well, is a child. So so it means an occupational therapist who works with children and who has had the upskilling. So basically you go through uni, like to get your Bachelor of Occupational Therapy, as an example, is a four-year degree. But when Mm -hmm. you graduate, you're a generalist. You can work with, you know, um, zero to 100. And that typically is how it is and all different conditions um Mm -hmm. but yeah depending on then your the the job you start to work in and the different um, professional development courses you engage in you may uh, we don't say we specialize because you can't really specialize in Australia um, Mm -hmm. for occupational therapy but you know that is our interest area and so that is the area that sort of birth to five is the area Mm -hmm. of which I've um stayed yeah okay yeah that's cool because I always think of pediatric as babies <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I don't yeah. know why like it's just babies and that's it and then we move on to toddlerhood and the world is whole different again <laughs> yeah and maybe because of pediatrician too you know the terminology yeah. pediatrician you think you know when you see a pediatrician for the most part is sort of right in the infancy and yeah, yeah, definitely. So, well, thank you for enlightening me. <laughs> on yeah, that. Not many people like know what occupational therapists do. And, you know, I, I've also, you know, tutored at, at uni and things like that, the occupational therapy course. And I feel like even it's not until third or fourth year when you're in the course that you, that it's kind of like that light bulb moment of, ah, that's what an occupational therapist does. So, or oh. is. Okay, so can you, uh, this might be a hard question to answer, but just go with me. Um, Can you sort of step us through a bit of a day or a a session that you might work with a child so that uh, like educators can get a a real clear understanding of, you know, the things that you can offer? Yeah. Okay, so to answer that, I'll just define really what occupational therapy is is and so when we think about occupational therapy and how it may differ or kind of work alongside other therapies like your speech therapy physiotherapy psychology um, and things like that is occupational therapy occupation means meaningful activity 
So um, often when I say I'm an occupational therapist, people think about paid employment, like getting, you know, occupational rehab or things like that, right? That makes actual more sense. (laughs) Then, you know, occupation means um, meaningful activity. And so where like occupational therapy was born um, around that World War II era and it really came from, um like nurses who were rehabilitating patients through meaningful activities so rather than simply Mm. exercises that you may get um to work on a certain muscle or or whatever it might be it was more through the activity of like we're commonly known as basket weavers you know back in the day in the sense that we would do our therapy through a meaningful activity like basket weaving or whatever it might be and so where yeah where the science comes from and yeah the the research and the the literature to form up occupational therapy it's really around the art like it's an art form and and science of meaningful activities so our actual intervention like when we're having a, a therapeutic approach um for children or trying to shift the dial, whether that is children or adults, it is around an activity. So you (laughs) often see us very much like early childhood educators, like engaging and um, supporting children to achieve their goals through play and through playfulness. Mm. Um, And then with also the, the goal, the end goal being the meaningful activity too. So we talk about as like a means and the end. So the therapeutic approach is through the activity for the goal of um, achieving the performance in the activity. Okay. Yeah. So, so where would where does that come in? So if if an educator observes that a child um, might have a delay in walking or um, what are the scenarios in which OT would be coming into a service and assisting a child? Yeah, so our focus is really on a child's participation. And I know that's somewhat of a big word, a buzzword, not big word, buzzword mm-hmm. um, at the moment, but it's it's performance and participation. These two words have been embedded in the work we've done always. So our, our main focus is in can this child do or engage in what they like need to be able to do want to be able to do or have you know have to do Mm. so we would look at things like and we would call occupations being like a child's main occupation and thing that they really need to be great at is play Mm. right and um so as an educator if you were noticing that this you know a child Um, was within your service and really having great difficulties engaging in play Um, Mm. any type of play that you would typically be expecting them to be engaging in at that time that might be where you would um, do your critical reflections have a you know conversation with family and that might be where you would like an occupational therapist to come in and um give some advice on that then you have your self-care activities so that might look like more things like um, toileting feeding um, sleeping those sorts of things Um, and then when you're getting you know children more um, in that transition to school period or more school-age children if you run after school care 
and things like that. It would be children who have real, you know, more difficulties engaging in more of those school-based activities like writing, um, like handwriting or um, being able to just attend to the academic tasks that they're expected to for any sort of duration at time of time. So they're the sort of occupations that we really look at and focus yeah, on. Okay. So, and this is where it becomes critical for educators to be able to have a body of evidence behind them when they're raising these concerns with families. Uh, because one way I teach educators to be able to uh, utilise their documentation in a uh, meaningful and professional manner is to use the milestone checklists yes. because they are a great resource. They are non-confrontational for anybody because I think the biggest challenge a lot of educators face particularly in family daycare, is that parents don't seem to always listen when an educator says, I think we've got some red flags happening here. Um, It's very different in a SETI, in a long daycare setting, because the director, you know, has a little bit of... um, clout that's the wrong word but you know what I'm getting at when it comes there's there's a little or or there might be a ECT there and so parents might be more inclined to listen to someone who's university trained uh, although we know there isn't any difference in acknowledging and observing red flags so um totally lost my train of thought as to where I was going with that question but um I think I was going to ask you uh, yeah. how, how we can start those, those, oh, no, that's what I was talking about, that idea of you know, completing your documentation and having that meaningful documentation behind you because that means that it's easy to then say, well, I observed on such and such a date, you know, I'm kind of looking in this range of window that your child will be able to engage in creative play around this time and I've been looking for this for about six months and I'm not seeing any of that just yet they'll play on their own but it's playing with their peers is what I'm actually looking for and I'm not seeing it how does your child do this at home do you have you know other children that you play with blah 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 and building that bigger picture because when a parent then does decide to take that information and go further that's really helpful for you isn't it as a OT Oh, yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah, really helpful um, for me. But I, I want to backtrack because I think you made a few really important points, right? So one oh, good, because that was so long-winded <laughs> and went nowhere. <laughs> no, Sorry, no. no, like, so I think what is really interesting, so for the last, up until I think it was February last year, I had spent the last seven years as the National Manager for Occupational Therapy within Good Start Early Learning, so within a long daycare um, scenario, which I'm well aware is quite different to family daycare. But what I can say is that similarity between having that conversation, whether you are a Cert 3 educator, uh, ECT or a director, it doesn't make it any easier. Um, but just in that long daycare scenario, um, I guess you have the backing of more people, right, to sort of have have those conversations um, and to validate what you're talking about. Um, but what I often talk to 
early childhood educators about around having those critical conversations with families is how much, and I'm sure you talk about this too, but how much that conversation starts long before, you know, you bring up the specific issue, you know, um, like that relationship, uh, how you're building that relationship with the family and you have such an incredible opportunity in family daycare to be, you know, having much less children and you are that point of contact and point of expertise, but how you're demonstrating your expertise in in the the way in which you're displaying your programming, the way you are feeding back to the the family about, you know, what is happening through the day and that starts to build that credibility credibility and understanding for the parents to understand, hey, you know, oh, mm. you know, this is an early childhood professional and they mm. actually, you know, they're, they're knowing what they're talking about. They're giving me this feedback mm. and meaning that, you know, as an early childhood educator, I, I think that gives you opportunity much sooner rather than needing to necessarily wait for six months to give that feedback yeah. with all of this data of being able to say, you know, a few weeks in, hey, I have been testing this and trialing this and, you know, Johnny is having difficulties engaging in play with their peer. I'm trying to work out, is that just in this environment or, you know, what's going on for home? Oh, okay, maybe we'll revisit that in a couple of weeks sort of thing yeah. and yeah. being able to have that conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, really- see, that's and this is like this is the importance of forward planning and intentional teaching. Yes, and this is like quite controversial sometimes, and people are like, "But it's a child-led program. You can't in- you can't plan twelve weeks in advance." And I'm like, "Well, you can because you use these goals and you use these the knowledge of the child, the prior knowledge of the child that you have, and when you combine that with like the milestone checklist." Uh, yes, if you're yes. just starting out with this process, when you combine those two pieces of information together, it can give you a roadmap 12 months in advance. Like you really, you literally could plan things 12 months in advance. We're obviously not going to be that, I was going to say the A word, <laughs> pardon me, but some, I'm aware some educators listen to this podcast for <laughs> children, so the, uh, retentive let's say retentive we won't be yeah. so re- retentive as to go 12 months in advance but when you're planning 12 weeks in advance it gives you opportunity to invite parents to contribute to this goal setting process and you can say to them we've got documents um, that that educators when they join our 12-week planning program they get access to um where you can say to a parent, okay, I'm, I'm getting ready to plan for winter, uh, you know, sort of in mid-May or whenever it is, I'm getting ready to plan for winter. These are the goals I've identified that I want to work with your child on. Are mm. there goals that you have at home? Are these in alignment with what you're experiencing at home? Because yes. quite often they will be in alignment. Your parent will be like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> just get dressed in the morning, for goodness sake, you know, like I'm trying to get out yes. the door. And yes. my, my teenager is just like not playing, you know. So then, yes. then it opens that conversation where we can be going, okay, yeah, well, we'll start working on that here in kindy. That will be our goal is to help your little one to be able to put their jacket on by themselves by the end of winter in time for them to not need to wear it anymore and then us have to teach them how not to put their jacket on anymore. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so, so I can see how that really works symbiotically because it also opens the door when using the milestone checklists to have a non-confrontational conversation with the parent because you could get them their own checklist that you send home with them to say, hey, can you just check this off? I want to see that you're seeing the same things that I'm seeing. Yeah. Uh, and you can operate those two together and have your family, you know, in really engaged in what you're doing for their particular child together. Uh, and, and it is that relationship building. It's so vitally important. But when educators want to be seen as professional, they have to do these professional things and be organised and planned and consistent in their approach. So what is and, it that, oh, sorry. Yep. No, I was just going to say, and families like appreciate that so much. I know it can be, you can be nervous of the initial reaction, but, uh, you know, over time as an, and this is why I absolutely love working in partnership with early childhood educators, because I, I truly think that they're the people that make the biggest difference in a child's life. Mm -hmm. And they're the people who have the touch points. And this is a big reason for me why I don't so much work in a traditional therapeutic model where I see a child once a week or once a fortnight for an hour and, and that is it. Like I like to work in a model that works in collaboration with the people who support the child the most and you know when a child is engaged in um, family daycare early education and care with an early childhood educator they're with they're with them all throughout mm. that that a whole day and so yeah. have, they have these multiple touch points to be implementing really simple strategies that totally make a difference and making and with the, the families as well much like they become that in, sort of extension of yep. their family and their trusted village. Um, yep. And so it's just, yeah, I just think what you're talking about, bringing some visual, like the, as in that the checklist as an example um, and that collaborative conversation around planning, what you're working towards, that's all relationship building and that's mm -hmm. all really supportive of if when you're noticing things might not be tracking, you know, mm. as typically for that particular child. And, you know, you've already got that that in and that soft landing point for mm. a parent to be able to um, feel really supported as they go through that diagnostic process or investigating what's going on for the child. Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. I can't remember who told me, um, but... Through the pandemic, there was a significant shift in trust in that parents now trust their early childhood educator uh, with knowledge building and fact finding on their children more than they do their GP. Yeah, I, be I believe that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And and like it's it's, you know, it's a no brainer to me because we spend more than 15 minutes or 10 minutes with that parent. Yes. <laughs> You know, we know their child's name and we are with their child. So they want to inherently have that beautiful connection with their educator because their educator sometimes spends more time with their child than they do. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah. So it makes sense that we need to really foster these beautiful relationships. And that's what I think one of the absolute benefits of family daycare is, is because you've got the same educator there from when the child arrives to when they leave. Yeah. It also gives you as a family daycare educator a more intimate relationship with that child because there is no separation in the day for you. You don't get to change shift. You don't just, you know, see ya, go home, my shift is finished, you don't spend the last hour going, oh, I'm going to bail and just switch off. You know, you've still got to be present with the children. And, yeah, I, I think that's super interesting. And I, I really like um, that that will flow in for and have benefit for you. So what other things do you think family daycare educators can do to um, notice when they could possibly be suggesting occupational therapy or is there places they can go to find more information out? Um, Because I think sometimes that's one of the biggest things is that children don't know how to integrate into play. Uh, and it's a bit of an art form in teaching how to integrate into play too especially when there's so many different neuro stuff going on nowadays was that even really a question yeah yeah so uh, yeah (laughs) sorry so around the finding occupational therapy but I think again you just touched on so I'm a circle of security um, Mm -hmm. trainer and facilitator um, and I love that attachment work and I and it really underpins everything Mm-hmm. that I do when that I teach and that I support early childhood educators with. And one of the biggest challenges in, in the long daycare setting, I suppose, is the change. We talk about primary educators and that primary attachment figure mm-hmm. of the fact that there is such a, a high turnover in the industry currently or changes of staff and things like mm-hmm. that. So immediately in family daycare, you know, you have this one attachment figure for the child set that's secondary to the to the family, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes it might actually be depending on the circumstance. And when we're talking about, you know, children who are experiencing or have neurodiversities or or have experienced trauma and and things like that, you've already laid the foundation, like of just creating that strong, connected, safe Mm. relationship. Mm. And so when we're thinking about how we can support children then to um, develop, you know, the different skills that they need or um, connect into these different play experiences, you already have the basis. You already have safety. You already have trust, which Mm. makes it, you know, a lot easier to to go into that space. Um, And also you have a lot more understanding of the whole play cycle as an example um, Mm. and a lot more freedom and less distraction for like that really um, deep play or deep Mm. work for children to Mm. to happen because you have the time you have the space so when we're thinking then about okay well then how do we support these children further and how may we refer to an occupational therapist or have a occupational therapist come into our setting to support these children um like for for me and I guess the way yeah I I work is more working alongside uh the early childhood educator to support them in how they're programming how they're planning how they're talking to children um Mm. 
we often do things like videoing the play scenario or putting, you know, a t- I've done it, the situation before where we put a time lapse sort of on the camera of the room and just mm-hmm. be able to monitor, you know, how the children are moving through, how um, how long the educator is sitting and engaging with the child, what sort of things they're engaging with. And together, you know, we can reflect on that type of practice mm-hmm. and look at how we can um, su- support that child to further advance those skills so that's that's the type of way I would work um but if you are a um yeah a family daycare educator and you're noticing sort of some red flags and you're thinking you would like some further support and advice after you've had that um well there are two ways one I I personally will have a course launching soon that will have it's all around regulation rituals and it's all about the things you can do uh, every day to embed into the work that you're already doing and the things you can kind of look for and support and the way you can structure activities to support children and scaffold uh, their learning. And so that's that's something from a professional development point of view, you know, and upskilling. Yep. But if you're wanting individual support for individual children, it, it begins in that conversation with the family mm-hmm. about, you know, what does that look like and how we are, are we really lucky at this very moment in time with the NDIS and early childhood, early intervention scheme, because that means that children need, like the criteria to get funding now means that a child doesn't need a diagnosis means a child needs a delay in two or more domains to be able to access that funding. And that and as an early childhood educator, your documentation and what you have um, been able to observe really means a lot in the case for a family to be able to gain funding. Um, and you also can make the referral on the ECEI once you've had the conversation with the family, of course, and gain consent, you can make the referral on the website, which will allow that family to go into a sort of a planning meeting discussion about what their child needs to get that early intervention and support um, before reaching that age of, of seven. So when that brain is the most plastic and available to you know really be supported and then that helps the family to access the funding and act access that therapeutic support that they need right which is a game changer um and yeah it's since this has been available um a lot more and and been a lot more accessible I have found that, you know, I am working a lot more with children and working in collaboration in this partnership model with Mm -hmm. all the professionals involved and really closely with their early childhood educator. And we're finding that by the time they get to seven, they've had a smooth transition to school. Like they no longer, there's not necessarily a need for a a bigger diagnosis or ongoing funding. And that's the point. The point is to get that early intervention support then um yeah. and 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 go from there which also when you're make, having those conversations about the red flags and the conversations with families makes it more important than ever yeah. to have those conversations early yeah to be really transparent with it and really being able to have that conversation with families like I'm telling you this now because 
there is opportunity for you to access this support as well. Yeah. And it yeah. might, you know, and I don't know, I find that to be a really soft entry point when families know that, you know, because sometimes the hesitation is like, oh my gosh, 200, you know, how would I pay $200 for a therapy session? Or then the pediatricians, hundreds and hundreds of dollars and this, that, and the other. But if, if you kind of come armed as well with the options and how they can access this, yeah, um, yeah, then that's really, really helpful. Yeah, okay. That's interesting because as a service um, provider myself, I've not heard of that website that you mentioned. We've always gone through inclusion support and maybe that's who it is that you're talking about, the KU inclusion support. No, so you've got two different things. So you've got inclusion support, um, so KU, and that would provide you with the yeah, hands-on support in the learning environment um, mm-hmm. for inclusive practices and, um, yeah, if you would be eligible for additional funding and things, which family daycare seemed to get le- left out of that bucket a little bit. But um, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but the e- ECEI, uh, like early childhood, early intervention, that's more parent-facing, like the parent gets that funding. Um but we can support them to go through that and we can also make the referral. Ah, okay. Um, we might talk about... We can link that, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Put that in the show notes uh, because I know uh, if you could, if educators could start that process quicker and not have to say you'll need to book into your doctor and blah, 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 that will quite often be a hurdle that some people, it will help them get over. Uh, it also then arms educators with the ability to be able to say, hey, I can help you do this and they can go and do it, uh, which yes. would be super incredible uh, because I know sometimes it's just that whole thing of um, people don't put these ideas forward because they don't actually understand the process themselves. 100%. Or it's really freaking convoluted, like trying to get anything done with the inclusion support. Like there's funding there that we can access, but the whole process to do it is just like, oh, poke me in the eye with a rusty fork. Like yeah. it's just yeah. so difficult yeah. and it can't be used for training. And it's just like, oh my gosh, yeah, every example they give you is a training example. Um, yes. And I started, are you, are you I'm referring saying, to like, innovative solutions yes funding yeah yes Yes, that is very I I have um, delivered a few innovative solution cases and it isn't it isn't easy to to get that funding and that's the uh, literally the only avenue open to family daycare educators that we could potentially get any kind of funding because the government in its infinite wisdom, took it all away from us. So, um, and quite often there isn't enough within a family daycare service to be able to fund all the children that require all this additional help. You know, their idea of giving us support when we've got a neurodiverse child or a child that's got higher needs in our service is to say, okay, well, we'll pay for a spot so you only have three children on that day instead of four, yet what they pay doesn't even cover the cost of that spot that they're asking you to give up so oh, they pay the subsidy like yeah the subsidy. like they, they pay yeah. they pay a, a nominal amount per hour for that spot and it might be like I don't know 
$10 an hour or something. It yeah. doesn't even, you know, like most educators are charging. And if you are not charging more than that, you need to charge at least the CCS cap. And I don't care what your service tells you, you charge at least the CCS cap. Anyway, um, it doesn't even cover that, you know, and it's like, well, you're asking an educator to work with a child that has more difficult circumstances so it takes more brain capacity, patience, skill set from you, the educator. Um, it costs you more energetically to work with these children. And that's not a negative. It's just what it is. And then they're asking you to take a pay cut. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And then you get the, you know, the the, the do-gooders. Oh, you can't ask children to leave a service just because they have a, a different set of, you know, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual needs. And it's like, well, hang on a second. Where, where am I in this picture too, you know? And so I think, it, again, it just comes straight back to this idea that your documentation is so vital in this scenario and it sets you up to be able to help the children and the families be able to access the help that you all need yes. to have a better outcome for this child because this is what we're all here for. We're all here for the, the betterment of the children, the highest goods of the highest needs of the children. Uh, so this is really valuable information, Sally, that I am so gobsmacked that I'm learning after 10 years because you just don't know what you don't know you know, you know? and I think yeah and for what you were just saying then about um you know it's such an important part especially when you're working by yourself in this scenario like you're working by your, your yourself as the family daycare educator and so what you're talking about around you know the do-gooders wanting to um you know, we we can't ex exclude children. As an example, I'm using air quotations. Um, I I'm totally I'm absolutely for like inclusion. Like that's that is what I'm about. And part of that, what I recognize is that each individual has different capabilities yep. to support that inclusion. Right. Yep. And so if you're a family daycare educator and you have um yeah you're supporting a child with with needs that you don't know how to meet right and you're there alone and you're tr trying your hardest to support that and you don't have the support network around you you don't have the help you don't have the skills um or capacity because you have never worked with a child like this before and and you don't have the training right you haven't had the coaching and the mentoring to to do that like that's not serving anyone either right it's not supporting that child and it's not supporting the other children in in your care and so yeah. that's why I really do um, feel passionate about what I do and the space I'm in and what I want to be able to offer educators because I don't want educators to feel that way I, yeah. I want them you know, I want true inclusion to be able to happen. And yep. for that to be able to happen, there needs to be read like access to the people who have the knowledge to coach yep. and to mentor to support them. So then suddenly it's easy. Suddenly yes. they know what experiences to set up for those children. They suddenly 
can offer themselves more self-compassion about yeah. what they are truly doing for that child every day and not beat them. Because often it's more around the fact that they end the day and they feel like, oh, you know, little Johnny didn't engage in all of those activities or oh, I didn't meet Johnny's needs and I just feel like a failure. Like I, I feel like I wasn't doing, you know, his job. But like you need someone to be able to sense check that with and knowing what is enough and what you are doing and what goals you're working on and what's appropriate to work on yep. to really have that sense of satisfaction and fulfillment in what, what you do. So yeah, it's oh, a really interesting part. Say it louder from the back, please, for those <laughs> in the back to hear because that is exactly what happens is you'll see people will put a post out and will be like, oh, I'm really struggling with, with this behaviour and now it's getting to the point where I'm completely triggered by it. Like they may not be saying that, but you can read between the lines and you can go, oh, you're hating this experience right now. Like yes. you've got nothing. You've got nothing to offer and what's happening now is that you're feeling resentful of this child. This child is is, is presenting with a complex set of unmet needs and it's it's coming out in a behaviour that's undesirable. However, yes. your skill set, is you know not to 10 your skill set dealing with that is sitting at around a four and yes. you've exhausted everything you've already got now there's this child is ramping up to a level you know you know level 10 because their need is not getting met there's a there's something going on underneath there and you lack the ability and it's not a judgment or a criticism no but you lack the ability to mine and excavate what's actually going on on there because you know you might have 10 years of experience but this whole trauma informed care that's around now which is so important because we know the generational trauma is just compounding and coming down and the line and it's being unhealed and then these children who are coming to us now are so much more expressive in how they share that but if you aren't trauma-informed educated yourself there's no way you can even scratch that surface so sometimes it is better to say I I've come to the point where I actually don't think I can meet your child's needs I don't have the skill set to be able to work with with your little one I love them dearly, like I, I, I really appreciate them, but my skill set isn't where it should be. It's almost the equivalent of going to a podiatrist to deal with pregnancy. Mm. Mm. Like that's literally mm. the set of skills that you have are specific to what you like to fundamentally work with. And that's not to say that it's bad. And, you know, I just think people need to be able to advocate for themselves more frequently and, and be more empowered around that to be like, am I a gynecologist or am I a podiatrist? You know, why did I choose those two examples? Do not ask me. <laughs> But, uh, and um, I think like in the long, so this happens all the time and sometimes it blows at people's minds when you think about when, when we, when I've like talk to a, a group of um, early childhood educators in a centre-based setting, but saying things like, you know, you're not going to like every child, right? And yes. what I mean by that is that what you're describing is, you know, a child who has needs that, you know, I don't know how to meet. I try and meet them. I cause a rupture. I, I 
I try and repair, or maybe I don't try and repair, but I've caused a rupture, then I cause another rupture, then I cause another rupture. And not only does that affect that child's ability to connect and be in relationship with me, it affects my ability to be in relationship with them. And then we start to have this cycle and we start to get anxious when they're going to even walk through the door and all of those sorts of things. In the long daycare setting as an as a scenario, you have multiple educators. And mm. one of the recommendations I make in that scenario is that um, children, if you are noticing that with a child, if you are noticing you have had so many ruptures in that relationship, if you're working to a key educator model, as an example, we need to swap that key educator. We need yeah. to tap a new, fresh-faced, enthusiastic educator who has not had that relationship history with that mm. child and mm. create a new ability to connect with that child and be really conscious and understanding of, you know, their triggers, their needs, the things that they enjoy and and have that educator more suited to that. So, mm. you know, in the long daycare setting as a scenario, if there is an educator who prefers more of your indoor activities, really loves expressive book reading, really loves block play, really loves that kind of thing. But then the child really loves climbing, rough and tumble play, rough housing. And and the educator that sort of they're paired with is more risk adverse and, and really that's just, that's not their jam. Like yeah. don't put, you know, we need to match the educator yeah. with that. And so I think for um family daycares like even you know the community you have and the and what you offer knowing like knowing who's in your area too um mm. like that is so important like so knowing not only um what other family daycares are available what skill sets those family daycares have and experiences they have and then what long daycares and kindergartens are available and what um Mm. other support you know programs are available too so when you're having that conversation with a family and really being upfront about what your skills and your capacities are and you might be at a time in your career and your life where you're like totally open to learning more and wanting to um, explore that more and upskill and get that support which I would mm. highly encourage but there are times in your life where you've got other things going on and that's just not what hmm. what's within reach it's like well who can I refer to as well how hmm. can I support this family in really being supported in another service that has these skills and capabilities um you know that's such a great way of framing community connection yeah yeah <laughs> I have I can stand here hand on heart and say I've never looked at community connection I've always kind of gone community connection like some of what we've done in the past to have community connection could be considered box ticking Um, just because there's so much to do in you know one day anyway but that is a really lovely way of framing uh getting to know your community and it could even be very well that you do look up the services in your region and 
get in touch with them and say, hey, just wondering what your strengths are, what you think your strengths are as a service, because sometimes I might need to refer families to your service if you've, you know, I know there's a preschool down the road from me that does nature um yeah they go to the creek behind their daycare center so they do that once or twice a week or whatever it is and they quite often do forest school training there and stuff so for me uh, I mean I'm lucky where I am I, I would I off I did excursions to the park every every week and we bush bashed and blah 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 um yeah. you know but but then I in this conversation I'm recalling this little fellow that I had that I'd persevered with for ages to the point where I was like oh I so hate Tuesday, Wednesdays, like I'm just not enjoying my work now because this little guy is just pushing all of my buttons and and it's really frustrating. So he didn't really engage in that outdoor play. You know, he would have been better suited to a place that spent more time indoors because he was quite soft and and, and gentle, you know, and and, um, that was just what he was like. So yeah. I can see now, and I, I like. I, I hope everyone else had the same thought process that I did as you were talking about that. It was just like, oh, community connections are so really important here. And yeah. how can can I, as an educator, facilitate that, or ask my service provider to facilitate that? Um, you know. So this is where it's really important that you have connection with the other educators in your service. Yeah. In family daycare, it's quite unique because you could be the only educator in your area um, and, and that's something, you know, challenging to get over. But then I think reach out to the long daycare services in your area. If you're in a small area, you're probably all going to know each other anyway. So yes. make those collaborations because it's important because they might refer people to you too at some point as well. So I think... And it- I think that that's really uh, an imp- why also, you know, when we talk about critical reflections and, you know, having professional mentors and having like why that is so important um, for all of us to have that person to to check yourself with and to help you see those other possibilities and and reframe things that way, you know, different ways. So, you know, yourself even noticing, hey, this little guy's pushing my buttons. Well, what are those buttons? How do I like before maybe needing to reach out and, and, support him in transitioning to a different service well you know what's going on for me as well like what's going on for me that that's that's happening is that something that I can work on or is that something you know like just having those critical reflections too around what that might look like how you could trial different things and then working in partnership with the family and bringing them into that because they might say the same like he, he totally pushes my buttons too and yeah. I'm finding it difficult so together we can have this collaborative yeah. conversation right yeah and look at I, I've said it before and I'll probably say it again very unpopular opinion sometimes you meet children you just don't like straight up and yeah. there's no difference between because I meet heaps of adults that I just think you are not my people <laughs> Yeah, there are people who are not your people. Yeah, and it's totally okay. And I think there's this big thing that we have to accept, be accepting of anybody and everybody within our services. And it's really important for family daycare educators to have boundaries around that because these people are coming into your home. You know, like you don't, it's not your job to save people either. Uh, And this is a really important 
part of the interviewing process. Uh, and you can garner so much information from families and their willingness to work with you by asking smart questions in that interview process. Um, so there's lots of things uh, that, that, yeah, we've touched on today that I go far out. It comes back to your documentation. It comes back yeah. to having a style of documentation that you can look back on and then traject you forwards further but you can always come back to these things. Like we have to be able to have a system of documentation that allows you to be able to be open with the families but back yourself with the information that you're saying. Yeah. Uh, and if you're this educator that's like, oh, but it's all in my head, well, that's not going to work necessarily in a family daycare setting, because in a long daycare setting, you can bounce these ideas off and someone there will be a note taker yeah. and be putting yes, this yes. information down and giving you the steps to follow and blah, blah, blah. In family daycare, you're on your Pat Malone. You've got to do it yourself. So, yeah, it's really important to have that documentation system. And the other thing that's coming up again and again through this conversation is being brave enough to own your limitations yeah like and to know them. them like first yeah. of all to know them and yeah. yeah accept them yeah and yeah. then and be transparent like we're all human um and so connecting in that way yeah yeah oh sally this has been so good i have just <laughs> learned so much from this conversation how can people find you to follow more of what you're about? Because I think there's going to be a whole heap of people that are going to head over to your website and uh, want to get to know you more. Yeah, so you can just find me at sallygalloway.com.au uh, and on there I actually have like a little booklet, like 10, um, 10 tips to calm for early learning. So it's just 10 simple you know, tips of um, ways you can create a sense of calm within your uh, environment. And that's absolutely applicable to the family daycare environment um, yeah. as well. So you can jump on there and, and grab that. I'll be running a free webinar that will go into that a little bit more and understanding your sensory preferences personally and understanding the children's and what that looks like in the early learning environment. So you can, you know, I know you were talking about you work a lot to rhythms and I do that too, rhythms and rituals across the day. So how you can structure those to really, you know, create this sense of calm and for both yourself and yep. um, the children. So, yeah, that's the best way to connect. We're speaking the same language, Sally. It's so good. Awesome. Awesome. I, I talk about all those things as well um, yeah. in depth and I feel like people must just get so sick of me banging on about clear the clutter, like don't have so much visual noise in your yeah. environment because I walk into some places, I'm undiagnosed in attentive ADHD, but I walk into some places and I'm like, oh, oh, like it just does things to my body straight away. Whereas yes. then there's other environments that I walk into and I'm like, my body actually relaxes and my nervous system feels more peace and at ease than any time of the day prior, you know, and it's just all around in how 
things are set up and the colors and the tones and the the noise you know when people have constant noise in the background like they don't understand that children have to filter that their brain has to devote some of its energy to processing that constant noise and archiving it somewhere instead of focusing on the learning that's happening in their hands you know so um and I think you know, I think that's so interesting what you're talking about um, because what we talk about um, and uh, like is your individual sensory profile. So it's super interesting like from your perspective for you to say like I really need it to be quiet to be able to focus, yet they'll, they will be someone else who cannot focus if it is quiet. And mm. so that is a piece that, you know, I really go into is understanding. I know it's so interesting and it kind of blows your mind a little of thinking and understanding how you can analyse your own sensory preferences and own sensory needs and how you can communicate those to others and, and understanding the children's unique sensory needs too. So then when you set up that environment, yeah. it is unique. So sometimes we have these blanket rules around things which totally makes sense maybe to the majority like yeah yeah but then there's people and I'm sure there'll be listeners who are like are you kidding like if the morning show is not on when I wake up like I don't know who I am like I need that background tv noise you know or I need the loud music on the car on the way you know to the gym or to work or whatever it might be to get me activated and others need just complete silence some people, you know, and so yeah, yeah. that's that's the piece that, so, um, that I go so, into a little bit more. That is so funny because do you know the music that I've discovered this week? <laughs> and I'm going to sound like a total lunatic, but I've discovered Australian bird sounds. Yes. <laughs> and I've been working all week to the sound of Australian bird sounds on my speaker behind me and I have become like super productive so much more able to focus because there's the sounds of the little wrens and the cockatoos and the magpies and all that stuff going on around me it's like there's enough it's just enough for my brain to have a little bit of focus back there that allow me to focus here as well and activate the cognitive functions that you yeah. yeah 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 and it's not distracting like it's yeah. for me, it's not distracting that is so funny because I just thought I'd stumbled upon something really great now I understand it's my profile um yeah 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 my profile is mother nature obviously <laughs> totally totally <laughs> oh that's so funny yeah. oh Maybe we need to do a podcast just on that kind of we thing. Can. We can. I know that there's people that are completely repelled by the things that I teach because they're like, no music. Oh my God, no, you're so old school and retentive <laughs> around yes. stuff like that. But I don't know. I just, it's not black and white, right? Yeah. Like, because we are so unique. So you might feel that, yeah, having it quiet. Um, is the most, you know, supportive thing. But then others gain so much energy from the music, right, or whatever it might be. You know, obviously it has to be appropriate music when you're yes. thinking about children and, yes. and thinking about their needs too. But kind of also when you can frame it in that way um, when you're working yeah. with educators and children of 
what is your unique needs? Okay, how can we meet these needs? And especially in a group setting where we need to meet multiple different needs. Um, so how do we do that? And what does that look like? Yeah, and yeah. it can be done, right? Yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. I did, we did like Justine Clark, you know, uh, we, we would have those periods <laughs> and, and then we'd be outside and we'd be working. Um, you know, yeah. the children always make enough noise anyway. Um, so, yeah. I think maybe we need to have a podcast just on this, Sal. We can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, see, this is so interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. But further <laughs> understanding. And again, it comes back to when an educator knows that about themselves, they can say that to families, you know, because I would I would totally be saying to families, look, I don't have background music on during the day. Um, I think there's enough sound going on for us to be able to process just that. If the children want to dance and put some music on, we do that. Uh, yes. But it's not something that I have in the background. And they might go, oh, we always do. And, and then, then it gives you cues and understanding because if that child is particular, their child is particularly highly strung, it could be that you need to have that period where they arrive where there's something happening. And yep. then you may be able to wind that down and then build it back up later on and wind it back down so that you're meeting everybody's needs. But if that's one little thing that can help a child settle in, again, yes. it comes down to quality questions in your interview. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, look at my brain pinging on all these other things <laughs> that I can do now for family daycare educators. But steady on, Victoria. Hold your horses. <laughs> we can there's always more time we can there have is always more time oh sally this has been yeah. so insightful and enlightening thank you oh. i did not have any clue that our conversation was going to go here today and i'm so grateful and thankful so thank you so much for joining us on the big heart big oh, thank- podcast today yeah thank you so much for having me i look all forward right. to coming back and talking about all things sensory yeah 100 100 we'll book it in <laughs> Awesome. All right, gorgeous. Thank you so much, Sally. I really appreciate your time. Have a great day. I will. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. When we work on our own, we can sometimes be in a silo. So having new perspectives and different ways of looking at things is vitally important for the growth of our individual selves and our professional selves as well. We love feedback, so if you felt compelled to share what you thought of today's podcast, we would love to read your thoughts. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcast. That helps our podcast to get out to the wider community. And the more that hear what we have to share, 